The title I've given our study tonight is The Spiritual Fuel That Ignites Faith, Devotion, Praise, and Prayer Toward God. The Spiritual Fuel That Ignites Faith, Devotion, Praise, and Prayer Toward God. Or condensing it down, Spiritual Fuel That Ignites Faith in God. And in the examination of this psalm, I want us to consider the four different portions the psalmist highlights as way of teaching us what it is that ignites faith in God. What is it that ignites the flame of faith in God, especially in those moments of trying circumstances? Looking to verses 1 through 8, I want us to notice first the psalmist's recognition of God's sovereign grace. The psalmist's recognition of God's sovereign grace. The psalmist says, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days and the times of old. How thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand, and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people, and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arms save them. But thy right hand, and thine arm, and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst the favor unto them. Thou art my king, O God, command deliverances for Jacob. Through thee will we push down our enemies, through thy name, Will we tread them under that raise up against us? For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever, Selah. And the first truth being highlighted in this psalm through the psalmist's utterances towards God is his recognition of God's sovereign grace as it relates to the salvation of His people. Did you notice the repetitive emphasis of God bestowing undeserved favor upon Israel simply because it was in accordance to God's divine purposes? Notice it again by paying close attention to the psalmist's recognition of God's conquering grace. Verse 1, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work Thou didst in their days, in the times of old. How Thou didst drive out the heathen with Thy hand and plantest them. How Thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. And notice the sovereign work of God contrasted with the inability of men in verse 3. The psalmist says, For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arms save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. So the first truth that the psalmist recognizes is the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. And specifically, He is sovereign 
in bringing about salvation toward his chosen people. Israel came to be what it is as a nation, not because of any goodness in them, not because of any work they did for God, but because God in his grace chose them to be his covenant people. Israel came to be what it is solely and wholly of God's sovereign grace. And this leads us then to observe the second connecting truth that is highlighted in verse 3, which is the psalmist's recognition of God's discriminating grace. So we see the psalmist's recognition of God's conquering grace through salvation, and then we see the psalmist's recognition of God's discriminating grace. The psalmist says, verse 3, speaking of the fathers of old, speaking of Israel, for they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arms save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. And what is said here in verse 3 is the echoing of Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, which says, The Lord did not set His love upon you, speaking of Israel, nor choose you because ye were more in number than any other people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because He would keep the oath which He has sworn unto His fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the truth that is being emphasized at the end of verse 3 is the truth that God is sovereign in who He chooses to show mercy. The Apostle Paul would echo this also in Romans. God is a God who shows mercy to whom He would show mercy, and God is a God who shows compassion on those whom He shows compassion. Paul echoes the psalmist as the psalmist is echoing Moses. It's the same message throughout Scripture. The psalmist is highlighting the fact that it has pleased God to bestow His sovereign favor upon a specific people. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel to be the nation through whom He would magnify His grace by inspiring and preserving His written word and being the human means through which the eternal word, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, would be born into the world. You say, that's not fair. I don't like that. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It's Bible truth. You say, I don't believe that's fair. I believe that God loves everyone in the same way. The answer is the same. It doesn't matter if you think it's fair or not. That's historical reality that is in agreement with God's holy will. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel 
to be the people through whom the Savior would come. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. So we see first the psalmist's recognition of God's conquering grace through their salvation out of Egypt. And then we see the psalmist's recognition of God's discriminating grace. And the third connecting truth that is highlighted in verses 4 through 8 is the psalmist's recognition of God's preserving grace. All these things connect together. Beginning in verse 4, the psalmist begins to call to mind the truth that God is not only a God who saves, God is a God who preserves those whom He chooses to save. Notice His reliance on God's strength, on God's power over and above His own strength and power. The psalmist says, verse 4, through Thee, not through me, but through Thee will we push down our enemies. Through Thy name, Will we tread them under that raise up against us? Should remind you of Jesus' words in John chapter 15. Without Him, we can do nothing. How is it that we fight the good fight of faith? We don't do it in our own strength and power. We do it through the strength and power given to us by the Spirit that has been given to us by Christ. And that's what the psalmist is saying. I will not trust in my bow, in what I have, in my ability. Neither shall my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hate us. So he ends his contemplation of God's sovereign grace in salvation by worshiping the one who's worthy of all praise and adoration. Verse 8, he says, in God the one who's brought salvation, the one who is preserving us, the one who's strengthening us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. Selah, stop and think about it. There's none of this. By my own strength or my own power have I made myself to be what I am. There's no boasting in self-accomplishments, self-worth, self-goodness. It's all glory to God. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Seems like we're always getting back to this truth. It's God who does his great work so that God might be honored and glorified. So the psalmist looks back. In history, and he sees God's will being done. And then he looks forward, trusting that God is going to do his will in the future. The God who has been is the God who is, who is the God who will. You see, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi chapter 3. God proclaims through the prophet, I am the Lord, I change not. He's immutable, he's eternal. 
So there's the first section of the psalm. The first section of the psalm contains a recognition that God is God. And that's what all these psalms are about. All the psalms are a recognition that God is the Almighty. He's in control. The psalmist is recognizing that as God, God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, and through whomever He wants. For of Him and to Him and through Him are all things to be glory forever and amen. The first section of the psalm highlights the fact that God has done and God is doing all His holy will. The Lord is in the heavens doing what pleases Him. And then looking to verses 9 through 16, we find point number two. The psalmist's lamentation of God's sovereign discipline. The psalmist's lamentation of God's sovereign discipline. And as I read verses 9 through 16, take careful notice not only of the changing of circumstances and this gloomy tone of voice of the psalmist, notice also that the theme of God's sovereignty is still being continually recognized. Verse 9, But thou hast cast off and put us to shame and goest not forth with our armies. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy, and they which hate us spoil for themselves. Thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat, and hast scattered us among the heathen. Thou sellest thy people for naught, and dost not increase thy wealth by their price. Thou makest us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them that are round about us. Thou makest us a byword among the heathen, a shaking of the head among the people. My confusion is continually before me, and the shame of my faith has covered me for the voice of him that reproacheth and blasphemeth by reason of the enemy and avenger. Did you catch his despairing circumstances? He asserts that God has cast off his people. He asserts that God has caused those that he has saved to suffer defeat. Whereas they knew victory in the past, now in their present, they're dealing with defeat. He asserts that God has scattered those that he loves among the heathen, making them a reproach to their enemies and their neighbors. These are words of despair. These are words of pain. They're words of confusion. They're words of heartache and discouragement. You see that. Now notice the psalmist recognize that the circumstances that have caused him to feel this way have been sent by God. While he recognizes that other people, namely his adversaries, are involved in causing such despair he repeatedly mentions that it is God who allowed his enemies to bring about the suffering that the people are experiencing. Over and over and over, the psalmist asserts that God 
was the ultimate cause of their defeats and calamities. And he's much like Job in this point, recognizing that it is the Lord who sovereignly gives and it's the Lord who sovereignly takes away. He's much like Joseph, acknowledging that while men mean things for evil, it is God who is directing the steps of men for a specific purpose, bringing about his intended good. So the first point of the psalm, we find that the psalmist is absolutely convinced that God is sovereign in the salvation of his people. And in the second part of the psalm, we find that the psalmist is absolutely convinced that God is sovereign over the sufferings of his people. You can't have one without the other. Either God is sovereign over all, or he's not sovereign at all. Either God is God, or he's not. So calling these two two truths to mind, we find then, in the third portion of the psalm, the psalmist's unwavering commitment to this sovereign God. Notice That's point number three, the psalmist's unwavering commitment to God. Verse 17. These are just powerful words. All this is come upon us. Discouragement, despair, hopelessness, scorn, ridicule, hardship. Yet, have we not forgotten thee? Neither have we dealt falsely in thy covenant. Our heart is not turned back. Neither have our steps declined from thy way. Though thou hast sore broken us in the place of dragons and covered us with the shadow of death, If we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Yea, for thy sake, notice that, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. What a magnificent testimony of true love and true devotion to God. In the midst of his trials and troubles, as the circumstances of life jostle his emotions, we find that the psalmist's heart is securely fixed on remaining faithful toward following the ways of God. Listen, there is no justification for spiritual sloppiness. There are no excuses offered as to why he can't be faithful. Having called to mind God's great grace and God's faithfulness to save and sustain, he reminds himself that this is worthy of fresh commitment to honor the one who has saved. So once again, I submit to you that this will always be the humble response of those who truly belong to Christ. Only those who are sincerely in Christ will seek God when everything in life seems to go against them. 
The hypocrites, the false converts, will fade away like the parable of the sower. But those whom God has truly saved will continue on in the faith. Those are Jesus' own words. Those who persevere unto the end shall be saved. And it's not their perseverance that saves. It's God's preservation through their perseverance that saves. We're kept, Peter says, by the power of God. It's not our strength. It's God's strength in us by His Spirit. And listen, oftentimes it pleases God to cause suffering in the lives of others to test their sincerity of faith. So never judge a person's faith by their immediate profession. Judge it after several months and years of testing. See if they still love Christ when God brings them through the fires. Isn't this what the book of Job is all about? God teaches us through the book of Job that his faith was genuine because he kept showing God his decision card, right? No, because Job persevered in loving and obeying God. You see, Satan accused Job of having a counterfeit faith. Satan told God that Job only served him because God was paying him to do so. But through the testings of Job's life, we find that Job didn't love God for what God gave him physically. Job loved God for what God had done for him spiritually. And this is the spiritual fuel that ignites faith in God. We read of it here in Psalm 44. We find it in Job's life. What is the spiritual fuel that ignites faith and worship and joy in God, even when everything seems to go against us? The spiritual fuel that ignites our faith to worship God is a humble recognition of God's undeserved grace and God's absolute sovereignty. Remember Job said, in the midst of his trials, I know that my Redeemer lives. Teaching us then that he had a Redeemer. By faith, he was trusting in the one who would come to be a propitiation for his sin. I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. He knew that his God was a living God, not a dead God. And so Job says, in the midst of his darkness, he being God, knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Did Job have his moments of frustrations and doubts and worries and even lack of faith? Yes. But he persevered to the end because God was preserving him. And Job was reminded there at the end of the book, remember this, of how absolute Sovereign God was over everything. The animal kingdom, the universe. Remember God's questioning of Job? Job, were you there? When I fashioned everything? Job, tell me. Look at the animal kingdom. Look at the world. How did this all come about? 
Job, you're forgetting something. You see, the flame got a little smaller in his faith and doubts. What was it that ignited that flame? It was God allowing Job to see who is God. And after that, Job put his hand upon his mouth in humility and in faith he said, I know that you are God and God alone. So this leads then to our final point, which is the psalmist's humble prayer toward God. The psalmist's humble prayer toward God. Knowing that God is the one who has sovereignly saved him. Knowing that God is the one who sovereignly keeps him. Knowing that God is the one who's sovereign over his suffering. He not only pledges his allegiance to God, he turns to the Lord in humble reliance on him to help in his time of need. Notice verse 23. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Arise for our help, and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. It feels to him that God is sleeping, but he knows that God is not. And how do we know this? We know that God, he knows that God is not sleeping because he calls on God to awake. He knows God is there listening. And you see, only a true acknowledgement of God's absolute sovereignty will cause God's people to turn to the Lord for help. Now, someone to accuse those who joyfully declare the truths of God's sovereignty that to believe such things cause Christians to be cold and inactive in the pursuits of God. But I'm showing you from Scripture that it causes just the opposite. Knowing that God is sovereign over all causes God's people to pray and to trust in God. You show me what a Christian or a church thinks about prayer and I will show you what they believe about God. The more helpless we know ourselves to be, the more we will pray. The more we recognize our inability and God's ability, the more we will depend upon Him rather than lean on our own understanding. If we think we know how to live the Christian life, if we think we can handle the trials and temptations on our own, what need do we have of prayer? What need do we have to cast our cares upon God and ask for His divine assistance? But the psalmist here prays, and he prays passionately, because he believes that God can and will intervene. So I'm asserting from this psalm that sovereign grace is the fuel that ignites the flame of love for God. Sovereign grace is the fuel that ignites the passion for praise. Sovereign grace is the fuel that ignites the heart to pray. Sovereign grace is the fuel that ignites the fervency of evangelism. 
Why do we evangelize? We evangelize because we know that Christ will build his church. He will be successful. The mission can't fail. So we rest on his sovereignty. Acts chapter 18, Paul given the promise in Corinth that God has much people out there. He's not done saving. Sovereign grace is the fuel that ignites our trust in Him. We are out of time, but let me just mention a few points of application. Let me point out from this psalm that we have need to hear of God's marvelous works from the older generations. And we have a responsibility to share the marvelous works of God to the younger generation. Here we can take this text and apply it to what we saw in 1 Peter chapter 5 Sunday morning. Ye younger, submit yourself unto the elder. Why? For what purpose? So that we might hear the wonderful works of God. Verse 1, notice it. Verse 1 declares the need to hear. The psalmist says, we have heard. And then he says, the need to tell. Our fathers have told us. So the question becomes, how do we hear? How do we hear about God being God? How do we hear about His wonderful grace? First and foremost, we hear through the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says. This is why it's vital for you to be in God's Word each and every day. To see the wonderful things that God has done through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel, and the patriarchs, and the apostles, and all who've been mentioned in Scripture. We read, we meditate, we study God's Word so that we hear, so that we might tell. We hear by sitting at the feet of the older generations. Now, I'm not pressing an age on that phrase, older generations. But we can look out at the pillars of our church, those who've been here for 20, 25, 30 plus years. And we can hear stories of how faithful God has been. We have heard. We have need to tell. Our fathers have told us. Let me just say another way that we hear is by reading the biographies of those who've gone before us. Next to the Bible, I would highly recommend reading the biographies of dear brothers and sisters in Christ who've lived hundreds of years ago, who've persevered in the faith, who tell us that God is sovereign and God is faithful. We need to hear because we are prone to forget. We need to hear because we take things for granted. And listen, what the psalmist says in verse 1 is what Christian parenting is all about. We hear from one generation, but we don't keep it to ourselves. We are taught so that we might teach. So what is it that should be going on in our homes day by day, week by week? The broadcasting, the declaring of God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness. That's what this younger generation needs to hear. It seems that everything is falling apart, 
But in actuality, God promises that everything is falling into place. Isn't that a message of hope for the younger generation? It's okay. You can be still and know that God is God. There's nothing new under the sun. Hard times and even harder times than we're facing have been here before, and yet God has ruled over them all. He is accomplishing His purpose. He's bringing about that which needs to happen so that revelation might be fully fulfilled and so that Jesus Christ might come for His bride. So we have need to hear of God's marvelous works from the older generations, and we have a responsibility to share the marvelous works of God to the younger generation. Christianity is multi-generational. And let me also point out also the need to magnify the free grace of God and the free will of God over and above the, quote, free will of man. The Bible from beginning to end magnifies one thing. It magnifies God's grace over man's decisions. Go back and study this psalm. And then go to Ephesians chapter 1. Then go to Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. And then go back to Genesis and start at Genesis 1. Work your way to the end of Revelation. And you will find that the Bible's messages, the Bible's sole message is all about God choosing, seeking, saving, keeping, and working through His people for the glory of His name. Rather than giving sinful men an allowance to boast of how wise he is, how good he is, the message of the Scripture strips man of his, his own self-efforts and throws him at the feet of a sovereign God. And I say all this to say I'm not sure why there's a present-day fascination with the uplifting of the free will of man when the Bible repeatedly emphasizes and praises the free will of God, the free grace of God. It's always bringing us back to Him. It's never about us and our choosing and our being good and our deciding. If we do believe, it's only because God has worked in our heart to such a degree where He has caused us to believe that which is true. So praise be His name. Praise be to His name. Are you hopeless? Are you discouraged? Are you downcast? Are you struggling in your faith? Is your prayer life cold? Your flame flickering? What do you need? You need to take the spiritual gasoline and pour it on the flame of faith. What is it? Knowing that God and God alone is sovereign. And in His sovereignty, He is the one who gives us His saving grace. And in that saving grace, He brings us sustaining grace. And when we contemplate this, we can be like Joshua and say, as for me and my house, despite what others do, I'm going to stay faithful to the Lord. That's what it is. Contemplating God so that we launch forth into faithfulness toward God. Heavenly Father,